0: Previously on the first half of our episode on Believe. Spoilers. Diana Butler Bass makes the case that the belief sign is a character. To believe in yourself, to believe in one another, man, that's, that's fundamental to being alive.
1: Yeah, our class might be the one where they start to believe in themselves. And that's got to be more than a sign. For us, it's what it means to be alive in the classroom, in our profession. Let's listen to what our guests have to say. Could you introduce yourself?
0: I'm Chris Lesniak.
1: We thought about you immediately because of your role in Lonnie Horn's book, Motivated.
0: I really believe all learners can learn math. So I focus a lot on relationship building. I think about like Sarah Vanderwerf's name tense at the beginning of the year. It could be two episodes worth of stuff. And now we continue with the second half of our episode on Believe with Professor Alana Horn. Welcome, I'm Dave. I'm John. And this is Teaching Like Ted Lasso. When we were first talking about Believe as a, a theme, I think I in particular connected it with this idea of motivation. The Teaching Like Ted Lasso podcast is excited to have as our guest today, Dr. Alana Horn. We're going to speak to her about her work, especially around this idea of motivation, and in particular, the connection to the believe sign in Ted Lasso. So, Lonnie, do you want to introduce yourself to our audience?
2: Yeah, I'm happy to be here. And I'm honored to get the belief sign because I feel like if there's anything more iconic on Ted Lasso than the belief sign, I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's Coach Beard's beard. Let's see. I am a math education researcher. I was a high school teacher in California back in the olden days, last century. And since then, my research has really focused on working with secondary math teachers, mostly in urban schools, to better understand ways to make mathematics accessible and engaging and interesting, and even, dare I say, joyful to most students possible.
0: So you are familiar with the show then?
2: Oh, yeah. I can't say I'm like a super fan or anything, but I've definitely watched it and enjoyed it.
0: One of the things then you're probably familiar with is that Ted asks lots of questions. He asks questions to break the ice. He asks questions Mm -hmm. to get to know each other. One of the questions we want to ask is a variation of what John has asked in his class. Would you rather have for a pet one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses?
2: Yeah. So I've been thinking about that one since you gave me a little heads up that this was coming down the pike, which I really appreciate because I do overthink these things. Mm. So you have to know that my stepdad was a veterinarian. So I spent a lot of my childhood around a lot of different animals. And one of my big criteria, when I think about pets, because we had all kinds of pets, we had hamsters and birds and cats and dogs, and we had everything growing up. I always think about the cleanup. So I'm really kind of stumped by this question because a horse-sized duck would probably require a really large pooper scooper, and that would be a very messy proposition. And I think duck-sized horses, it just changes it because there's a lot of them running around. But I ultimately land with the duck-sized horses because I think that that's just going to be a little bit cleaner maybe you can actually sweep it up and I really think you can make an incredible YouTube channel with your hundred duck size horses
0: so a I'm appreciative that you made a connection to think about your your previous life with pets and mm-hmm. and then I love that you're trying to monetize this it's interesting uh, <laughs> Uh, the connection so so the original one was which one would you rather fight that was the one that john asked oh chris lesniak suggested that he was a not a fighter so he suggested he suggested the pet one yeah but he also talked about maybe then breeding them and selling them
2: there's a market for it well you really can't keep a hundred duck-sized horses for very long Without doing something, because it'd be such a huge part of your life. So you have to monetize them because presumably you're going to have to scale back on your other commitments mm-hmm. to take care of your 100 duck-sized horses. So that's that's my reasoning anyway.
0: I think I would have had to have gone with, although you make some compelling arguments, I think I would go with a horse-sized duck simply because we haven't had as many pets as you have. I, when we just had two dogs, I didn't feel like I could give each one of them enough attention, right? I
2: figure that like 100 duck-sized horses, they're making friends. Yeah. They're helping each other out. So but you- yeah,
0: those are, you make some compelling arguments. I could be swayed. I I
2: overthought this.
0: One of my introductions to your work was the book Motivated. We use it with our pre-service middle school teachers to think about what it looks like to engage students. So I'm wondering from as you look back at that work, what does it mean to in a motivated classroom? What does believe mean?
2: That's a great question. I think that I think there's a few kinds of lines of belief. One is like on a broader scale. That math is for everybody, and that just because you don't like one thing in math doesn't mean you don't like all of it. Just like we have our tastes in literature and music, we may have our tastes in math, which is an idea I got from Justin Lanier. And I think then the next big belief that I think a teacher in a motivated classroom has is that all students, like their job is to figure out where students can connect with mathematical ideas, and that their job is to help students understand and recognize their own strengths, their own curiosities, their own passions, and that it's worth trying to find those in every single kid. I think that the way math classrooms typically are organized, and you know this as a math educator, that when you go to some kind of social event outside of our little bubble and tell people what you do, you get the response of, oh gosh, and you get everybody's math horror stories. And then every now and then you get someone who loved math. But more often you hear people's, I was never good at math kind of stories. I kind of want to flip that on its head and say, well, maybe you just never figured out the kind of math that's good for you. Because, you know, you're obviously a smart, competent, interesting person with curiosity about the world. So there's math out there for you that you can get into. I think it's partly a mindset thing that, uh, teacher and motivated classroom needs to have.
0: And what about the students? What uh, I think you've kind of transitioned a little bit into that about mm-hmm. where you want students to start believing about, mm-hmm. about themselves and the mathematics. What are what are some things that you would maybe hope to hear from students, hope to see student, students do in the, the motivated classroom if they were to believe in themselves?
2: So in one of the classrooms I taught in, I didn't have a belief sign like Ted, but I had a big yet sign. And I didn't make that up. I got it from wonderful colleagues. But just the idea that when students say I can't and tell you what they can't do, that you always end that sentence with yet. And so we had the big yet so whenever students' negative self-talk would kick in about, I can't do fractions or I don't do decimals or I hate two-step equations, whatever their thing is, you just point up there and they know that that's sort of the the mindset, the culture of your classroom is, is that we're all here to learn. And just because you can't do something now, the expectation is that you're going to work until you can. And I'm here to help you. And I believe that you can. I think that that's where we see it with the students.
0: That reminds me, too, you also wrote the book Strength in Numbers, mm-hmm. and one of the pretty strong pieces in there for me, we talked about it earlier in the podcast in our theme on teamwork, but it's this idea of collaboration. Yeah. That, and I think that that comes through pretty clearly in the show as well that that ted believes in teamwork he wants the players to believe in one another not just one player like jamie tart but that everybody brings something that they can contribute to the success of the team
2: so part of why i like ted lasso is i did play i did play soccer growing up and i also played for one year in college and it really is true that the the most exciting soccer games that I've been a part of is when we came together as a team and we really had our passing game on and we had our plays down and the other team just couldn't get ahead of us because it was almost like you just knew where the other player was going to be and, and you got the ball to them and that's that's the beauty of, of a team sport like that is that, is that you really do have the opportunity to play off of other people. And it's not just about you. It doesn't all come down to you. Although in second grade, we did, my team did make the playoffs and we got to penalty kicks and I was the last one to go and it did come down to me and I didn't make it. So sometimes it does come down to one person and that's burden I've had to carry, but Really, the the most fun, I think, and the most exciting is when the team just comes together, almost like a giant organism. And I think that that can happen in a classroom as well. When students start to believe that they have something to contribute to mathematics, that they can learn it if they find their way in and the teacher offers them multiple ways to find their way in. What starts to happen to the culture of the classroom is is it does start to become this kind of collaborative environment where I know I can turn to you because you're really good at explaining things in words in a way that makes it very clear. I know I can turn to another student who is really good at drawing pictures. So when we're solving a problem together, I can recognize that that other student who's good at drawing pictures may not be the fastest at doing uh, multiplication facts in her head or whatever. But man, when we're trying to figure out like how to do a diagram of how we solve the problem, she's got it. And so I think that bringing this rich mathematics to kids to work on in teams, they can start to really see in an authentic way what they have to offer and see in each other what each other has to offer. So it doesn't become this hierarchy of who's good and who's not. So you don't need like Jamie Tart to take over and solve the problem so we can all be done with it. It's like, no, no, we're all in this together.
0: That's so great. What position did you play?
2: I was the sweeper.
0: What's interesting, I I didn't know that about you. And I didn't know, I think that makes sense in terms of now that I know sort of your approach and the way that you think about classrooms and the way you think about supporting teachers. One of the projects I was doing, I was working with a math teacher Mm -hmm. who was also a football coach and he wasn't really interested sometimes in Mm -hmm. what I had to say about sort of these shifts that we're talking about Mm -hmm. our classroom and then I talked to him about, because I was a football coach as well. And I talked to him about football coaching and he lightened up. and oh, opened up. Yep, he opened up and he talked yeah. about, and I'd talk about things. He'd talk about, yeah, we'd show videos and they get, they get better because they see what's working and what needs yep. work and all of these things. And, and I would then subtly shift them back and say, so what would that look like in a math class? Cool. Not, he ended up, it was near the end of the, the, the year, he grabbed some students who were now doing well in math and did videos of them about what it took to be good in math class. And That's awesome. I mean, it was a very subtle sort of mm-hmm. shift in terms of what to do. But yeah, I was always amazed by the number of coaches that I would encounter in these professional development sessions who weren't able to translate what they were doing on the field or the pitch or the court into the classroom that they, that somehow there was this disconnect. And I think you put it really well in terms of that these things are, and again, it was something John and I saw in Ted Lasso is how well these things go. And and mm-hmm. there's lots to learn to think about, you know, even if it is an American football coach, c- coaching English football in England.
2: <laughs> yeah, the premise is a little far-fetched, but they make it work.
0: I know that in your chapter on belonging mm-hmm. and motivated, and then I heard you talk about sort of an asset approach to supporting student success. Mm-hmm. I heard that on a podcast in the the math teacher lounge. So how does asset approach support this idea of believe and motivated and belongingness in a in a classroom?
2: It's interesting because we know that social psychologists have talked about motivation for a really long time, about building off of a sense of belongingness, meaningfulness, competence, and autonomy. That That's what makes people feel motivated to do things. Like when you were talking about the football coach, he's motivated to think about football, probably because he experiences those four things. He, he feels a sense of belonging. His identity is about as a football person. And so it's meaningful to him. He's probably good at it or was good at it at some point in his life. And it gives him this feeling of like being a person in the world who can make kind of decisions. And that's where the autonomy comes in. And I think any of us, when we think about the things where we feel the most connected and we feel like no one needs to make us do this, you know, for some people it's playing music, for some people it's gardening. It usually means that you're feeling those four things. I think that the asset-based approach is like a thread through all of those things. Because when you feel like you're good at something or who you are, is gonna allow you to be successful in this environment. That gives you a sense of competence, obviously. And it also gives you a sense of belongingness. Now, if you can then kind of ask your questions and talk about the things you care about in relation to what you're learning, there you've got your meaningfulness. Mm. When you can go out in the world and start solving problems or asking questions on your own and being independent in how you use these tools and ideas, now you've got your autonomy. motivation is really, really tied to this idea of bringing who we are and what our strengths are to this environment and this learning activity and this whole thing called math class. The fifth one that I put in the book, Motivated, about accountability, that had to do with the fact that social psychologists, when they studied motivation, they were looking more at individuals in relation to particular things that they liked, like hobbies or subjects or whatever. But teachers don't aren't dealing with people one-on-one they have to deal with a room of people. And so there's kind of this mutual accountability. It's not accountability like test scores. It's accountability like we have a certain way we need to act here. And like there's certain norms we all need to respect and we need to respect each other in certain ways. So it's more of a accountable to community norms kind of accountability. And actually. An asset-based perspective contributes to that as well. Like the example I was talking about earlier with you about how kids eventually learn to recognize, oh, Dave's good at this, Lanya's good at that. We can all work together and bring our different strengths. So starting to see the strengths in other people and, and showing that kind of care and recognition toward other people is actually a community building lever as well. So I think that the asset based perspective kind of ties up a lot of those different dimensions of motivation.
0: I mean, as you're talking, I'm also thinking about recognizing other people's assets as a way to to build them in myself or Mm -hmm. the same thing with students, right? The student might recognize that another student has an asset of representations. And one way would be, uh, yep, I'm just going to rely on that person. Another way, hopefully, as we're thinking about that idea of accountability is that I want to learn from that person. Exactly. And and I know that that goes with uh, the smarter together. And I'm imagining it's also, again, it's been a while with strength and numbers, but in the strength and numbers that we are getting smarter together. That's right.
2: Exactly right. To me, that is the joy of being on a team, whether it's a sports team or like when you're working on a big project or if you're putting on a play, that the whole really ends up being greater than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. And I personally really enjoy those experiences. I enjoy community and collaboration and that kind of extra pump that you get from feeling connected and and being able to see things that you wouldn't have seen otherwise i mean i think that's why people do things like book clubs Mm -hmm. or listen to podcasts Mm -hmm. i think that there's there's something very enriching when someone might say what's the connection between ted lasso and math teaching and someone might be able to rattle off a few ideas but then if they listen to a podcast like this and really go into the, the weeds with y'all, there might be like little light bulbs that, that go off where they're like thinking, oh, I wouldn't have thought of it that way. And, and that's a, that's like a nice feeling that we have mm-hmm. and it makes us feel like we're part of something bigger than just ourselves. And we're not just limited by our own ideas. And, and I think if you're someone who seeks that out, that can be a really gratifying experience.
0: Part of what we've lost in the academies is the humanity that goes along with creativity, and and I I like you believe that so much of that comes out of collaboration. I had this conversation with my students yesterday. The difference between cooperation and collaboration. Yeah. There's yeah. one thing to, to split up the work.
2: That's and right. Then bring it
0: together, and there's another thing to split up the work and then bring it together. And I like how you said make the whole greater than the sum of those parts. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some some roadblocks that teachers or students encounter when they're they're trying to either foster or engage in this this idea of belongingness?
2: There's so many. One is just the sheer number of students that secondary teachers have. I always like to say how I had 180 students on my roster my first year of teaching. It makes it hard to get to really know everybody in a meaningful way. You only have them for so much time. It's not like elementary school where the relationship comes first and the content is there, but it's not as important as the relationship and socialization. I think that secondary teachers really have the work cut out for them to make these spaces for belonging. And kids have already a lot of times been in school and not been asked to bring their bigger, more whole self in, and they might feel protective and not want to share with a teacher, which is completely their prerogative. So a teacher really has to earn kids sharing. I don't think kids are obligated to share their personal selves with teachers. So I think that those are our challenges. I think that there are cultural and linguistic issues. Teachers often tend to gravitate to the kids who are most like them, whether that's that they like math in the same way, that they come from the same kind of demographic background, that they're outgoing students or whatever. It's just sort of like a human nature thing that I think part of becoming a professional teacher is part of that work is rising above that sort of very understandable inclination and developing a curiosity and an openness to people who are different than you in various ways, culturally, linguistically, demographically, but also in terms of temperament, also in terms of how you sit in a classroom, how you feel about math. Those are, those are some real challenges that a lot of teachers encounter.
0: From a student standpoint, what keeps them from feeling like they belong?
2: Yeah, that one I think is a little easier in a way because so many, by the time kids get to middle school and high school, so many of them have made up their mind that math is not for them. Mm. And so, just by the very reality of being in a math class, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how cute your posters are on the wall, doesn't matter how big you smile or how much you high five them, or whatever it is that you do to make your classroom a welcoming place, the very fact that you're a math classroom and you're a math teacher is going to put up a wall for a lot of kids you have to be really aware of that and, you know, humble about that. And I think most math teachers are to one degree or another aware of that. Yeah. And, and some of it, it's not for some kids, it's not just about math itself. It's about school in general. And so sometimes kids have walls up, not just about math class, but also about school. School is not for them.
0: Now in the book, you look at, is it
2: six teachers? Yeah, Six
0: teachers. And what did those teachers do to help the students feel like they belonged.
2: Yeah. Well, it's interesting that Chris Wozniak is on this podcast because he's in the book as well. And one of the things Chris did was he would have the first assignment his for his students to be to email him with an e- introductory email. And so even though he, he was teaching high school, he had a lot of students, he had them introduce themselves. And I don't remember exactly what he had them put in the email, but it was you know, name, who's the best person to contact, da-da-da. So if he ever needed to pull up anything about the kids, he basically made this database of who the kids were and whatever questions he asked about them. That allowed him to remember specifics about kids in a pretty organized way. Sarah Vanderwerf, who's a secondary math teacher in Minnesota, had something she shared on math Twitter like years and years ago about making these name tents for the first week of the year. And she would ask kids a question every day and have them write it on the inside of their name tent. And then she would just write a quick response. It's a big investment of time up front in the first week of school, but she saw it really pay off in terms of how much kids would open up to her, and how much she learned about kids that she wouldn't have had access to otherwise. And then I'm thinking of Refrains Davis and Peg Hegel, who had space in their room, like a wall space dedicated to students. Peg's wall said, we hold the, these truths to be self-evident, and kid, kids would just put up whatever things they wanted so it was kind of like their bulletin board and and refrains had something similar so she had a lot of photographs and like artwork and I think just even having a kid dedicated space or a student dedicated space it becomes kind of like a conversation piece for other kids to go oh I didn't realize that that student had you or like who's that and wow that drawing's really good who made that it just sort of signals to kids, even the ones who might be more reluctant to open up to see that you're someone who is receptive and interested and curious and wants to make a place for those kinds of other parts of you and who you are.
0: I love those ideas. And and Sarah has come up more than once. And that idea has come up more than once on the podcast. It's, it's such really a, it's a gem. Yeah. And in fact, Chris said he does that. He might still also do the email, but he does that now and it, or did that um, the last couple of years in his class.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: What's interesting to me, and I, I, I don't remember or recall if this is in the book, but as a middle school teacher, I got really into a sort of a standards-based grading uh, project approach. And a lot of my students enjoyed what they were doing as middle school eighth graders, However, they didn't think they were doing math. They would on a regular basis talk about, I like it, but it's not math class.
2: Oh, my gosh. You know, Christopher Danielson? Yep. I hope we're not going too into the math Twitter weeds. but Oh, that's okay. Okay. So we did a research project where we followed kids at the math on a stick playground that he made at the Minnesota State Fair. And we were just like really curious to see what math are they doing? Mm -hmm. And one of my doctoral students in her dissertation, we spent a lot of time looking at this one little girl who's working with, Christopher had these, I don't know if they were like six by seven, something like that, egg crates with all these little plastic eggs and you could do designs. And she's trying to make a heart and she has it faced the even way. So she's having a hard time getting it to come out. So that there's a point on the bottom, and she's she's working on that, and she finally like wrote figures out she can rotate it and she gets so excited and she's like, Look, mommy, look, and it's this whole thing. And at the end of that, so we've we've analyzed it, we wrote a paper about it, like talking about all the mathematical thinking she's doing and all the mathematical practices we see. At the end of that, her mom turns to the person with the orange apron who's like one of the assistants and says. Um, can you give her a math problem now?
0: Because this is math on a stick. <laughs> oh.
2: Like, oh my gosh, your daughter just did all this amazing mathematical thinking. She's thinking about symmetry, she's thinking about even and odd numbers, and she's seven years old and she's making all these incredible connections, but it's not math.
0: Which is again one of those hurdles, right? Is sometimes family members who are telling them that I wasn't good at math you don't need to be good at math those sorts of things and and yet they won't allow in some cases teachers to do anything different because that's what they were familiar with
2: yeah I don't I guess it was a couple years ago I read a paper with a sociologist colleague of mine and Grace Chen about homework and about how there's really no evidence that homework, especially in the early grades, adds any value to learning. And in fact, there is evidence that it adds to a lot of stress in families. My read of the evidence is homework should go away, especially in early grades and middle, even probably even middle grades. While we were working on this paper and I'm like reading all this stuff and looking at all these studies and we're looking at our data and I was doing some work with a school district they were talking about something about their homework policy. And I said, well, maybe we should just not have homework. One of the EL specialists said to me, oh, no, no, parents will be really mad if we don't have homework, especially because it was a district that had a lot of students from all over the world. She was telling me they will not trust us that we're a good school if we don't have homework for their kids. I think that's interesting because I think math is so caught up in all of this culture of schooling that it has to look a certain way it has to be a certain way and almost like it has to be experienced a certain way if we're having fun with it is it actually math still like that's kind of what your kids were asking you mm-hmm. which is like man are we trying to escape a prison of our own making like is this just one of those like paradoxes where if we really break out of all of the structures that are getting in the way of students having these kind of direct, joyful, lovely, thoughtful experiences with math that doesn't feel like it's math anymore to them because it doesn't look like school math. I'm not sure what to do about that.
0: Well, I think some of it is the work that both you and I are doing, hopefully with the next generation of teachers. So one of the projects that I have my students do is write a book for their future students about what it means to do be a problem solver and they nice. I have to do it collaboratively. They have to do it around particular content, one that, that's a geometry and one that's a measurement. And they're laughing and they're enjoying themselves. And I have to every now and then stop them and remind them that they're in math class and that what they are doing is mathematical. And what they're doing is important because they can be able to share this with the next generation okay. of students and maybe they will see it different. I like that. I have yet to see the the fruits of of my labor, but you know, maybe, maybe soon. I have
2: one happy story in that. Oh,
0: good. Let's end on a happy story because you've been incredibly generous.
2: So my oldest daughter, when she was in her junior year of high school, she came home and she like the first week and she said, mom, my pre-calc teacher, she teaches the way that you talk about. And I was like, wait, really? What, what's her name? Because it's Nashville. Maybe, maybe it's somebody. And she told me her name. And I'm going through my old rosters and I'm trying to think. I'm like, I don't know. Well, I said, that's great. I'm really happy for you. And I could just see my daughter was like lighting up and really enjoying math class. And so back to school night rolls around and I go in the classroom and I take one look at the teacher and I go, Oh, cause she'd gotten married and changed her name. And I knew her as Lizzie, not Elizabeth, but she had been my student mm. and she was teaching and she got to teach my kid, which was just incredible. There's no like higher recommendation than when your kid who my, my kid is a kid who loves math. She works like in a research firm right now doing surveys and data analysis. She was an econ major. She loves math, but she didn't always like school math. And for her to have had that kind of experience was probably one of the most gratifying things I've had as a math educator.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. So we are making a difference. A difference can be made.
2: A difference can be made. It may be sometimes it feels like a drop of water in the sea. Yeah. But hopefully there'll a smaller pond than I'm imagining and there can be some ripples that get sent out.
0: Well, this has been incredible. Just as as I expected, it's so great to to reconnect with you, Lonnie, and yeah, we appreciate you and all the work that you've done for for the math education community, and and look forward to maybe connecting again sometime soon.
2: That sounds great, Dave. Thank you for having me.
0: I feel lucky that we get to talk to these incredibly passionate and knowledgeable and experienced people to talk about this whole idea of believe and engagement and debate math. I I love
1: listening to both of them, and it really makes you believe that this is possible. This This is happening.
0: In her book, Motivated, she's talking about how these things are happening in Chris and other teachers' classrooms. That help us again to believe that the that this is possible. I
1: love that aspect of Lonnie's professional practice that she goes places, goes right. to these classrooms, goes to a school right. where these things are happening, and just tries to think about, right. oh, well, so so why is this stuff happening?
0: I guess I want to really lean into this idea of belongingness and and what that what that means in terms of for teachers and what it mean meant in the show.
1: Well, in the, yeah, in the show, it's interesting, right? So as they're having these football challenges, they've got a lot of personal life challenges as well, and and they are there for each other. Mm-hmm. There are those places where it's clear that the being in a team to them means more than
0: they play this game together. What's really interesting is in the article that Diane Butler Bass wrote. She quotes Marcus Borg. Borg in The Heart of Christianity says the words believe and beloved are related. What are the things that we love? What are the things that we care about? Those are the things we believe in.
1: I mean, we've talked on earlier episodes about that kind of the ways a teacher loves their learners. Right. But this is really then inviting them to extend that to each other.
0: Yes. So in the show, at the end, Ted's torn this all up, but what's happened to the belief sign? Good question. I wonder if they ever answered about it in the show.
1: We have to talk about it
0: because it's a visual. We could show everybody bringing out a piece of it, right, and bringing it together. And again, to me, that also connects with this idea of that they've all... Got a piece of this belief and they've right. all brought it together.
1: Which, looking at that last scene, made me realize I don't know mm-hmm. if I've watched that since seeing the, the end of the series, but that they had to tear the sign up further. Even more. Yeah, for, yeah, I for was everybody that to have a piece. And they made sure that everybody had a piece.
0: Well, and I was interested too in the trailer between season two and season three there was the one where everybody was making their own belief signs Mm -hmm. and they all had their own sort of take on it it had it had the personality of the person that was making it and i think in both of those cases it's representing this idea of internalizing it's more than just a sign up there, right? right. Growth mindset is more than just a sign. Asset-based is more than just a sign. The process standards are more than just a sign up there that people have internalized it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's evidence in the, in the end there. That's 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 what I make up at least. Pam Harris will talk. People ask her for posters
1: of, she's the math is figure outable mm-hmm. teacher, and people ask her for posters of some of these things, and she refuses, right? Because mm-hmm. the, the making of it, is, is what she wants to happen
0: right it's putting a, a bit of yourself into it instead of just yep i've got it right so good Very nice I, please check out our show notes for more resources Can I just say, we are the luckiest people you know, I, <laughs> what, What's that line? I feel like uh, I fell out of a, a money tree. What, do you know which one? And landed on a batch of Sour patch. Well, we'll put... Uh, I will break in at this point in the editing and put it in. I, I feel like we fell out of the lucky tree, hit every branch on the way down, ended up in a pool full of cash and Sour Patch kids. How did we get so lucky?
1: (laughs) Well, a boy had an idea about a podcast. Boy had a dream. (laughs)